Out of love and affection for God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word, remain standing, please. And let's give our full attention to the reading and the preaching of it. Hear now the word of God. And he told them, that is Jesus, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and never lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is the word of the Lord. Father in heaven, we give now our full attention to that word and ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would keep our minds from wandering, that we might be in tune with what your Spirit would seal to our hearts and our minds this day. Pray that you would bless the speaking, the words of our pastor, that he would speak absolute truth by, uh, by that same powerful Spirit with clarity, that we might be we might be reminded yet again that we were once dead in our sins and transgressions, but you, who are rich in mercy, have made us alive in Christ Jesus. Seal that to us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please, friends, be seated. If you let your mind wander today, it might blow away. <laughs> You're sitting back here listening to this. Uh, it's quite a... Uh, quite a ruckus out there. I've been grieving a loss, and I know that this is going to elicit your sympathy and your suggestions, uh, because it did in the first service. Uh, but my loss is my mechanic. I, I, I loved my mechanic. He was honest. He was capable. And uh, I, I love them because I'm desperate when it comes to mechanical things. I am I'm terrible with it. I know where the gas goes in. Uh, I can maybe change a tire if need be, but uh, that's not my fort by any stretch of the imagination. But I could take my car to this mechanic, and he would take a look at it. He would say, yeah, you really need to do this. You, you know, probably could do this, but you probably don't need to do this. And, you know, we, we need to fix this, and we could do it this way, but I can also get you this used part or whatever. And it was a blessing. I mean, we have a fleet of cars, you know, that we maintain for the Vandermosses between myself and Lisa and all the kids. And so to have somebody like that was, was just such a blessing uh, because cars, you know, are a losing proposition from the word go. Uh, so I'm grieving the loss of that mechanic. I, I tell you that story because I think it illustrates uh, the importance of having somewhere to go when you're desperate. 
when you are desperate to have somebody that you can go to that you can trust, somebody that you can go to who is capable and can deal with the issues uh, that you are presented with at that moment. Um, we, we, we long for that. And, and Jesus knew that His disciples would long for that too. And that's one of the reasons why He told them this parable in Luke 18. Uh, those of you that have been going to the men's Bible study, you, you know recently as you've been studying that it, one of the things that's so important to properly understand Scripture is context, context, context. You know, there's historical context, there's literary context, all of these things. When we come to this parable in Luke 18, we're going to miss something if you just start reading at verse 1 of Luke 18, and you don't go back to the closing verses of Luke 17. And again, as I've said to you before, the Bible didn't come with chapter markers and verses and all of that. It was just one continuous flowing narrative, so it was less likely that you would miss the context. But in the context here, the end of chapter 17, Jesus is asked about the kingdom and the kingdom coming. And, and Jesus is saying to His disciples, the kingdom is coming, but it's not going to come without suffering. It's not going to come uh, in a way that everything is going to be made right, right away. And in fact, it's going to come with tribulation and with trial. And you are going to be treated poorly. You're going to be treated wickedly. And you are going to need, as, the, as my disciples, as God's disciples, you're going to need to learn this lesson of prayer in order to exist. I, I love this quote from T.W. Manson, who's commenting on this passage. He says, the disciples... You know, this story is told to disciples who remember that they're not the pampered darlings of providence, but rather they are the elite core in the army of the living God. And because of that, they are foredoomed to suffering at the hands of wicked, and in many cases, the seal of their election is their martyrdom. You know, we, we recognize that to a certain degree. We maybe don't reckon with it enough. But the reality is, is that if we're going to follow Jesus and we're going to continue to faithfully, you know, set our course in the direction that He invites us to, we, we're going to face the wickedness of the world. We're going to face persecution. We read about it in our call to confession from Hebrews chapter 10. It will either come upon us or come upon those who we love, come upon those who we are connected to by the Spirit and we suffer alongside of them. It is part of this world that we live in. It's part of the, the battle that's going on between Satan uh, and the forces of evil and our Savior and His kingdom that He is coming to establish. And so Jesus tells him this parable. You know, because that is your reality, because you uh, have these mechanical difficulties, where are you going to go 
with your vehicle? Where are you going to go in order to navigate the, the course of life, your discipleship? And he tells us three important things uh, about prayer in this. He tells us something about prayer's posture. He tells us about the petition, the central petition of at least this prayer. And then he tells us uh, a little bit about the promise of prayer. Can I just say one thing about prayer? I mean, we do it a lot, right? Uh, or not. Uh, you know, we, we talk about it a lot. We talk about it a lot in church and have some concept of it. Uh, I don't know what your experience is with prayer. Uh, you know, how much do you pray? What do you consider real prayer? How do you see God answering your prayers or responding to your prayers? Oftentimes, though, we, we see prayer uh, very transactionally. Like, I do it, you know, and once I've done it, God responds to that. And, and it's probably not the best way to think about prayer. Uh, it, it gets us into sort of a uh, it gets us into a sort of a merit based uh, approach to prayer. Sometimes people will even say that, like you know, I had a bad day, but I, I forgot to do my quiet time, uh, or you know, I had a really good quiet time last Thursday, and God really seemed to show up. Uh, we we have sort of this transactional idea with prayer, but but prayer is about a relationship. You know, one of the things that we believe about God is that He's not just a higher power, that He's not just a theological concept or an idea. We, we believe, based on how God reveals Himself to us in His Word, uh, that God is our Father. He is our friend, uh, that, that He comes alongside of us, and He, and he very much interacts with us in, in our life, and, and prayer is the way that we interact with Him. We, we talk and we listen. We hear. It's, it's, that, it, it's that relational conduit that we have with God. You know, so sometimes prayers can be very formal. We sit down at the dinner table. You know, we pray before a sermon. We'll do various things. They're very formal in that way. Other times, prayers are, are just as you're driving along. And, and your heart is crying out before the Lord, or uh, you're giving Him thanks for the things that you're seeing, but it, it's not as formal as all that. You know, but prayer is this relational way in which we go to God, and that helps us, I think, too, get into this, uh, get into this parable, this teaching here in Luke chapter 18. Because Jesus wants us to continue in that prayer. So the first thing is, in terms of prayer's posture, we are to be persistent in it. I mean, that's very hard, right? Very uh, outset of this parable. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Always pray, not lose heart. Uh, to persist in prayer, even when... It seems like our prayers are not being answered, even when it seems like wicked is prevailing over righteousness. Continue to pray. Why? Because you are going to your Father. You are going to one who will hear and answer, and we'll develop that in a minute. 
One of the things that we, we need to again, context, you know, there's the literary context. We need to see chapter 18 following chapter 17, but there's also the historical context. I don't know what picture came to your mind when you were reading this about a, a widow coming before a judge. Certain generation of you might have thought night court. Uh, some of you may think of, uh, you know, our organized court systems right now where there's a docket and, you know, people come before a judge. It wasn't like that in this century. Uh, so in the century in which Jesus was talking, the way in the Middle East culturally, the way that this worked was this. Imagine a room about this size, and it's filled with people, and they're all talking. And in the center of the room is the judge. He's the one that, that hears and gives uh, dispensation ruling on various cases. The way that you got to the judge was that there are basically his clerks all around, uh, and people would go up to the clerk and they'd say, we have this issue, we'd like to get it before the judge. And if you were able to slip that clerk a little bit of money, uh, or if you were a person of prominence, you were able to get to the judge before other people were able to get to the judge. And that's the way that justice was dispensed. Now, if you were a woman, uh, you were in a different situation because it was mostly men that came in and uh, worked the, the court system. Uh, and, and so we have this situation where you have this, this court uh, you know, scene going on, and you have a woman who's very much in a man's world, and she's going, and she's raucously raising her voice day after day after day, trying to get justice, trying to get a hearing uh, before this judge because she has an adversary who is putting upon her. And this judge, who we are told on two occasions, neither fears God nor respects mankind, uh, this judge finally relents to her because she's such a pain in the butt. He's like, she's just beating me down over and over and over, uh, which incidentally, a woman could get away with, a man could have never gotten away with that in that world, because a man would have been seen as a threat to the social system. Women didn't count. Uh, at all. And so, you know, part of the reason why she could come and wail like that day after day was uh, because she was a woman. But finally, this judge relents and, and he, he acts in her case uh, because she was persistent. And God said, that's how you need to see yourself. You need to see this heavenly throne room uh, and you need to come day after day uh, and, and make your petitions known before him. Now, as we're going to see later on, God is nothing like the judge who doesn't care about justice, who probably only cares about power, probably only cares about the bribes and what's in it for him. Uh, he doesn't care about doing what's right for people. Uh, but, but, but God says persistence, like the widow in this story, is something that is beholden to us. The other thing that we learn from this in terms of our posture is not only are we to be persistent, but we're also to come desperate. Uh, you know, it's so significant that it's a, a widow here and not a man. Incidentally, there, there is a uh, Ben Sirach, who was a 
Pharisee, uh, scribe, teacher of the law uh, at that time, had a story that was very similar to the one that Jesus told. Actually starts out with a widow, but then the story transitions. Uh, it's, it's less of a story and more of a teaching. Transitions to a man. Uh, and uh, one of the things that sets Jesus' teaching apart is that all the way through it, it is this widow. And I think many of you know something about widows in that day. Like, uh, they were like the living dead, you know, particularly if they didn't have a son or they didn't have anybody else to advocate for them in that man's world. So Ruth and Naomi, uh, we see kind of how that works out, you know, that they just, uh, they're completely dependent uh, on somebody else. And, and here's the case, she's she is desperate. She has nobody to go and advocate for her. And, and she has to uh, just go in all of her messiness, you know, against this adversary. She has to go in that way. And that is one of the things that God is telling us. He's saying, look it. You know, in your world as a disciple... You have to understand that the wickedness of this world will so push you down. It will so subjugate you in, in various ways. Uh, but I am inviting you to come into my courtroom completely desperate and completely helpless. In fact, Jesus is saying, this is the way that you reach my heart. This is the way that we come together and we commune. You know, oftentimes we think about our prayers as being something that qualifies us for God to hear us. You know, if I've done the act of praying or if I've prayed just so and so. But Jesus is teaching us like, no, it's not a transaction. You know, it's a relationship, and I, and I want you to come uh, with all of the brokenness, with all of the, the pain and the wickedness and the messiness that you are experiencing in, in life because I know it, and, and I receive it, and I am strong enough to deal with the very things that you are bringing me. You know, in the context, just after this, Jesus tells a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector who go up to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee says, I thank you that I'm not like that tax collector, but I do all of these things. I tithe the mint and the dill and the cumin and all of these different things. Meanwhile, the tax collector is standing far back, won't even approach the temple, and he's simply crying out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. You know, there, there is the attitude. Jesus says, which of the two went home justified? And the answer, of course, was the tax collector, not the Pharisee. And this is the posture that Jesus is inviting us to in prayer. You know, just the fact that we are praying, if we're honest, is acknowledgement of our desperation. You know, we are saying, there is stuff, junk, garbage in my life that I can't handle. I don't have the wisdom, I don't have the physical strength, I don't have the emotional capacity to handle the things that are going on in my life, and I am appealing to a higher power. I'm taking my broken down car saying, I have no 
clue how to fix this thing? You know, will you, you know, the competent, compassionate mechanic, fix my car? Prayer is an acknowledgement of our messiness and of our need and our desperation. And Jesus is encouraging us to say it's okay. In fact, God wants you to come into His throne room that way. The second thing that this parable really teaches us or leads us to is uh, an acknowledgement of the fact that one of the greatest longings of our heart uh, is justice. I, I find this a little interesting and and maybe even a little arresting in, in our culture. You know, oftentimes we, we talk about mercy and grace. Particularly with Christianity, we, we talk about mercy and grace. But what this woman needs, and uh, by extension, Jesus is saying what the disciples need, uh, because they are going to be in this uh, environment in which wickedness is going to be coming against them, and they are going to wonder who's taking up their cause. Uh, what they need is justice. They, they need somebody to act on their behalf. They, they need what is wrong to be set right. It, it's not necessarily mercy that she needs from the judge or that she's looking for. She's looking for justice and acknowledgement that wrong has been done, a setting to right the wrong that has been done. And as we look at this, we think about this uh, with regards to specifically what this means for disciples who live in a time where wickedness still prevails, oftentimes seemingly against the righteous, is uh, we understand that there is something called justice that we can pray for. Uh, sometimes we forget this. We, we forget that, especially in, you know, post-modernity, deconstructionism, uh, all of these types of things, we, we forget that there is a straight line. There is a moral arc to the universe. There is a fabric that we can lean into that calls for justice. C.S. Lewis, uh, in, his, uh, in Mere Christianity, where he's talking about his own coming to faith. I mean, he, he was not raised as a Christian. He had to come to faith. And he said, my argument for a long time against God was that the universe was cruel and unjust. And maybe some of you have that exact same argument. You know, how can there be a God if all of this junk happens over here or over here, or if this has happened in my life? But then Lewis said to himself, I realized uh, and I had to wrestle with the question of how had I got this idea of just and unjust? You know, a man does not just call a line crooked unless he has some concept of a straight line. And one of the things that Jesus encourages us to lean into is the fact that there is justice in the world. There is justice as, as the fabric of the universe, and we are encouraged as we are being persecuted in the case of the disciples. You know, as we experience, uh, we experience the anti-shalom, 
You know, things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. We are, we are encouraged to go to God and to pray for justice, to pray for somebody to right the wrongs, to pray for somebody to, to, to see to it uh, that, 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 those who, uh, that those who are acting foolishly uh, receive recompense uh, for their deeds. And, and, and Jesus is saying, yes, there is that moral fabric to the universe. And yes, secondly, then lean into that. Long for that. You know, long for that as an individual. Long for that for our societies. Long for that for the world. Pray for justice to happen in ways small and in ways medium and in ways way larger than we could ever uh, imagine that justice could come. Do that because... One of the things that's so beautiful about the Christian faith is it weaves together the concepts of mercy and justice in a way that I am not aware of any other philosophy or any other world religion that does it so uh, in such a satisfying way, both intellectually and emotionally. I mean, that's what the cross is about. You know, we often talk about the cross as being center to, to Christianity. But why is it central? It's central because in it we see this concept of justice where, where God satisfies a just wrath against sin. And we all know that we desire that. Right when we we talk about the the monsters of history, whether it be Nero or Pol Pot or Hitler, I mean we we know that these people deserve something for the way that they've acted. So so we long for justice, and the cross speaks to us of justice. It speaks to us of the of the full wrath of God poured out against every sin that was ever uh, committed. But it was poured out against Jesus, who was a willing bearer of that sin. He himself knew knew no sin, but became sin. And he bore that as as an innocent, willing person. And so you have the full wrath of God, but because Jesus was willing to do it, we see his mercy as he extends to those put their faith and trust in Him, we see His mercy saying, listen, you don't have to pay for your sin because I paid for it for you. You see, this is so central to our Christian doctrines. And and Jesus teaches us here, like, look at, lean into this. Your hearts are going to cry out for justice. Your, your, Your body at times is going to ache for justice. It's real, and I'm aware, and and the story of the gospel perfectly wraps up justice and mercy. And this is good news, right? I I mean, it's good news for us uh, on so many levels because we all come in with our own heart's cry for justice. Uh, We we come in, uh, you know, maybe it's something as small as uh, being ripped off by your mechanic, 
Uh, maybe it's something, you know, like you, you read in the news. You know, just two weeks ago, uh, another story came out. And, and I realized that, you know, these, these are very sensitive topics. Uh, but, you know, 700 people since 1998 in the Southern Baptist Church have had uh, sexual abuse cases that have been recorded and undealt with. Uh, and the cry out for, for justice, you know, in those, in the waiting and, and looking for God uh, to show up and, and how do we deal with that, looking for institutions to, to act in, on their behalf and, and to advocate. I mean, we have how many, you know, Syrian refugees who have lost their homes uh, because of injustice perpetrated on them. We go back to the disciples and, you know, Peter, James, and John, they're martyred for their faith, right? Did they do anything that deserved that kind of treatment? Did they, uh, did they beat anybody up? No. But this is what we see in a broken world. We, we see victims and we, and we long for justice. And what Jesus is telling us is good news. There's good news that we, our people, can continue to come before God. And He hears our cries for justice. And He acts not because He's browbeaten like the unjust judge, but because He's good and He's right, as we'll explore in just a minute. The second thing that we observe from this is that, uh, you know, as we see the heart of God with that, we recognize that we as a church, you know, we as His disciples are to be sympathetic to the cries of, for justice that we hear all around us. You know, we, we cannot take an attitude that just because something doesn't concern me directly that I have no responsibility in it. I was struck by that in our call to confession uh, in Hebrews from, from chapter 10. Uh, maybe you saw that. Uh, sometimes you are publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Sometimes you are being partners with those who are in affliction. You know, such, such was the belief about the body of Christ uh, in the first century, that if, if you believed in Jesus and I believed in Jesus, we were of one flesh. You know, we, what happened to you happened to me. And I wonder if we remember that to the degree that they were aware of it in the first century. And I wonder if, if we long for justice uh, for, for those who, who are struggling under the opposition and oppression that our world comes to offer. You know, this is, I would just say, one of the ways that we could ask the Holy Spirit to help us. You know, what comes to your mind with that? Uh, how will the Holy Spirit lead you in reflecting the heart of God uh, that hears cries for justice in that way? Because that's who God is, and that's really the third thing. It's prayer's promise. The promise is, is that we don't come to an unjust God, right? Or an unjust judge uh, who neither fears God nor respects humans. But, but we come to one who is altogether gracious. 
and He's altogether powerful. Those two aspects of God's character, it's really summed up in the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. You know, our Father, His graciousness, His compassion, the relational element by which we come to Him, who art in heaven. In the seat of power, we confess Jesus who has ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father. That's the judgment seat. And we come to Him, and Jesus is our advocate. We don't come on our own, but we come to one who has the ear of the Father. Five bleeding wounds He bears, we just sang. Uh, They strongly plead for me. They pour effectual prayers. Uh, and, and so we come to a God who is good, who loves us, He's our Father, but He is powerful and He is able uh, to, to meet us and to, and to answer our prayers in a way that reflect the justice and the mercy of the gospel and in the universe. But you say, you know, Pastor, one of the things that I struggle with, and it's there in this text, Jesus says, you know, if you pray, uh, will not God give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night? Will He delay long over them? I tell you, He will give justice to them speedily. It doesn't feel very speedily sometimes, does it? Uh, I mean, just even think about that Houston Chronicle story. I mean, going back to 1998, I mean, there are areas in our world where persecution has been happening for centuries to certain groups of people, and they've been crying out to the Lord. It doesn't feel very speedily. It feels like a delay. How do we, how do we reckon that? How do we understand that? I'll say a couple of things. The first thing is, I, I can't, I don't completely know. <laughs> uh, there are some things about that that intellectually I, I can't give you A, B, and C. I can tell you a couple of things, though. Uh, the first thing is this, you know, God's concept of time and our concept of time are very different. You know, we're told Psalms repeated, I think, by Peter, the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. You know, we, we have a concept of when God would work in our life, and uh, we have a timeline, and we'd like Him to stick with it, and, and that's what constitutes speedily for us. Um, take that for what it's worth. Uh, secondly, I, I think we also, not only just with regards to time, but also with regards to the answers, you know, it says He answers speedily. You know, we have a concept not only of the timeline, the chronology that we would like God to work on, but we also have a concept of how He needs to answer us. And, and that's not always the right thing. I mean, we, we sometimes presume to actually be God in our prayers, right? God, we would like you to work in this way or that way. When the reality is, you know, the faith, the, the kind of desperation, and you know, Jesus says, will the Lord find faith in the earth? He's not talking about their 
a set of orthodoxies, not talking about a, a transactional persistence. He's talking about a throwing of ourselves upon Him, an absolute trust to Him. And, and our trust in Him is that we not only will submit the chronology, but also how He answers. Because we understand that in the grand scheme of things, what we think would be the best answer may not always be the best answer. You know, I think about these disciples that are there, Peter, James, John, Jesus' best friends. You know, uh, we, we have some extant literature that tells us that, uh, that most of the apostles were martyred. Uh, Peter was traditionally hung upside down. Uh, and crucified in that manner. I think Thomas was beheaded uh, in India. You can go through all of those. John alone died as an old man, but on a prison island, right? Uh, and uh, scavenging for food, that type of thing. Uh, none of these people saw their deliverance in their day. They all suffered the, the sort of the finality of temporal injustice. But, think about this. God wasn't only thinking about those 12, but He was thinking about you and me. And He was thinking about the things that they would write and how their stories would play out and how that would affect Bryant and how it would affect Lisa and how it would affect Andrew and how it would affect, you know, all of history that was going on. If He had answered their prayers only with response to what they had thought, there would be a very limited working out of His purposes. But one of the things that God invites us to in prayer is to say, trust me. Not only with the timing, but also with the details of how. And this is how we can actually believe then that God works speedily. When you go to God in prayer, you can know that He has heard and He is answering your prayer. Right now, speedily. He is in the process of answering your prayer. Now, it may not be exactly how you conceive it in that timeline, and it, it may not fall in exactly how you think it would, but one of the things that God is encouraging us to is trust. Will you believe that I am answering this prayer? And I think that's the question that he ends with. When the Son of Man returns, and some of it, you know, is very contextually spoken to his disciples, you know, Jesus was going to die. That wasn't part of their plan. Those disciples didn't want Jesus to die. They thought He was going to be the earthly Messiah and He was going to reestablish Israel. When the Son of Man comes into His kingdom, will He find faith? Will He find a people that are willing to trust Him, to throw themselves on Him, and to follow after Him? The disciples, the twelve, you and me, will He find us in a place of dependence upon Him? Because He is a good God. He, 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 he responds to the justice that He has created into this world. And the gospel is such a beautiful story of truth and grace, of justice and mercy. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful.
for this story that teaches us to pray and never give up, but teaches us so much more than that. It, it leads us to your very heart, and it beckons us further up and, and farther in. Lord, we, we know that we are going to need your help even to, to rest in you, to, to have that kind of faith that you are looking for, to acknowledge our desperation. And, and part of what we're doing in this prayer, Lord, is, is just crying out, Spirit, help us. Help us to, to be the people that, that lean into our King. Lord, we're so grateful for this kingdom that you're bringing, a kingdom uh, where justice and mercy rule. We give you great praise, and we ask now that you would continue uh, with us as we continue to honor and glorify you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.